Hello, and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Research Projects Coordinator at the Sainsbury Institute and Researcher of Language and Japanese War Heritage. Today we're joined by Brittany Rapone, PhD candidate at the School of Social Sciences at Oxford Brookes University to discuss attitudes towards pets and animal cafes in Japan. Brittany walks us through the cultural commonality of human-animal relationships and the rent-a-pet model of animal cafes in Japan, providing the iyashi or comfort of animal interaction at an hourly rate. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, good morning, Brittany. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. So first of all, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? Well, as a PhD student in anthropology, I've been brushing up on just general sociocultural Japanese anthropology. But my previous background was more focused on animals and animal conservation. So my expertise has become where those two areas would cross in a Venn diagram, I guess. So that's why I've been focusing a lot on pet trade and animal cafes in Japan. So I could combine my expertise on animals related to conservation in addition to the sociocultural issues of Japan. Great. So let's provide some context to animals in Japan. Pet ownership is one of the great constants of human societies, although key elements vary from culture to culture, such as what animals should and shouldn't be pets or what the purpose of pets are. Could you provide us with some of these fundamentals around pets in Japan? Um, yes. So I liked when you talked about it being one of the great constants, because that's something I realized too when I was doing some research into it, just the key events and the timings have been different around the world, but the progression from people mostly just using animals for utilitarian purposes to gradually becoming more indoor pet family members has sort of happened around the world. In Japan specifically, though, there's actually interestingly a few people who do research on pet funerals and pet cemeteries in Japan. So you can find actually pet cemeteries with tombstones from 1905, 1910, and things like that, that a great majority of them and a great increase in pets was mostly after World War II and occupation and as the economies blossomed in Japan. And many things that used to be for the elites of the upper class kind of became middle class common things to own. And one of those things was pets. It's actually often referred to as a pet boom. But the more I look at it, I don't know if boom is actually the correct word. The Japanese government does a lot of surveys every three years, basically on every and any topic. And they've done one since 1974 was the first one. They did like a general opinion survey on animals and animal protection and things like that. And even since 1974, when they first did it to the most recent one in 2010, in general, when they ask people, do you have a pet? 
it's always been around between 30 and 35% of the population. So that's been pretty stable for a long time. What I think has changed, though, is what you were talking about, the types of pets that have become common to keep and how people view pets as part of their family members. While the rate of people owning pets has stayed pretty constant since 1974, one interesting thing I noticed was that birds in Japan used to be fairly common pets, according to this survey. And as time has gone on, that's drastically decreased, whereas dogs have been the most significant increase in ownership. So not necessarily the rate of pets changing the past few decades, but perhaps just the type of pets being commonly kept. Mm -hmm. I see. And uh, how does that compare with British or American pet keeping habits? So from what I can tell, it seems that it's fairly similar, again, to many other parts of the world, including in the UK and the US. Just this, the general progression might have occurred slightly later. But when you doing reading and reading about lots of the issues in current day Japan that have to do with pets and people's concerns that pets are replacing children, that people, young people prefer pets over having, you know, starting a family, lots of these same exact topics that come up and related to modern day pets in Japan are actually being talked about in the US and the UK. Similar with the pandemic, there was lots of talking about lots of people adopting and buying pets in the US. And then as I came here, during the pandemic to the UK, reading about that too as being a big thing, that a drastic increase in the amount of adoptions and pets. And I, while talking to some Japanese friends, I haven't been able to see the numbers on this, but just casually talking to Japanese friends, they were speaking of the exact same phenomenon happening in Japan, that as the pandemic you know, increased the work from home situation, that there was a big rise in people getting pets. Fascinating. So a defining feature of pets in Japan isn't pet ownership, but a kind of pet renting in the form of animal cafes, ranging from cat cafes to owl cafes. How did this industry start out, and how is it distinct from private pet ownership? Okay, so the pet cafes, start with the cat cafe, that's probably the most well-known. There's a cafe in Taiwan that from 1998, took the claim of the first cat cafe. But from what I understand, it was a cafe in which cats could casually wander in and out as they please. Not really what the modern day cat cafe is, but that concept sort of grew out of there and went to other countries in East and Southeast Asia. I think actually first South Korea, and then it came to Japan in 2004, I believe was the first cat cafe and it functions on the model that it's a cafe in which you can get food and drinks but there's a bunch of cats that are just lounging about that you can interact with as you please and they are most common actually in Osaka and Tokyo but you can find these throughout Japan and again these actually can be found throughout East and Southeast Asia as well and slowly they have been popping up in the more Western world. There's a couple in London. I know there's at least one in Edinburgh. There's a 
couple that pop up in the U.S., but they're actually in general different than the Japanese ones, which I can go on to explain that later. But one thing that Japan sort of started was the non-domesticated exotic. So in addition to cat cafes, there are also rabbit cafes and things like that. Again, sort of typical pet animals. But from Japan was actually the first owl cafe. And from there, it sort of has exploded into being cafes that have multiple niches. Owl cafes are probably the most common of the exotic ones, but there's also ones that specialize in reptiles, you know, snakes. Um, there's a lot of them that are just called shodobutsu, you know, just small animal cafes that will feature, you know, sometimes things that are, again, still typical pets, such as gerbils and guinea pigs and things like that, but more and more exotic, what usually is referred to in Japanese as mezurashi animals, such as meerkats, otters, prairie dogs. The original reason I actually got into this was because my advisor was looking into slow loris trafficking in Japan. And I've seen cafes online with slow lorises. Um, sugar gliders are very commonly found, just like a hodgepodge of these small, cute mammals. Mm-hmm. So these exotic cafes can also be found pretty much throughout East and Southeast Asia. I've heard recently that South Korea has recently banned these cafes, which is interesting because they have a few raccoon cafes in South Korea. It'll be interesting to see what happens to all those raccoons. <laughs> but, you know, these sort of exotic cafes, while we do have some of these sort of seedy roadside zoo things in the U.S., you're not going to find any sort of like exotic animal cafes like you can in East and Southeast Asia. Mm. And I use the word cafe, but it's also important to note that the cafe aspect really varies. Some of them are just like indoor petting zoos. And it's like, oh, here's a water bottle, you know, and that's the cafe aspect. Whereas others are like a full menu with drinks and things like that, that you can enjoy while looking at a lizard or something. Sure. So I'm intrigued by the uh, different effective levels amongst the clientele. Do regular visitors develop personal attachments to individual animals, making them a kind of pet substitutes, or is it more of like a observational practice? I mean, what's the level of engagement with the animals here? There's been some literature published focusing on cat cafes, some ethnographic work that shows that basically all types of people go to these cafes, you know, people by themselves, couples, groups of friends. But what these individuals doing this ethnographic work discovered that really caught their interest was these regulars who came all the time by themselves and were often like middle-aged salarymen, women who were coming in every day after work. And a lot of these people would have favorites. An interesting aspect too is a lot of people who go to these cafes when they've done surveys actually have cats at home as well. So it's kind of like a vacation pet. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to see. And when these people who were the regulars who the ethnographic work was focused on when they were interviewed to figure out why do you come here, pretty much every single person, the concept of Iyashi came up, which is commonly 
directly translated as healing in English, but it's not necessarily like a, a physical healing per se. It's like a mental, emotional sort of healing. I think also like rejuvenation, renew, relaxing, that sort of stuff all kind of falls under the bubble of Iyashi. Anything that like regenerizes you for the next day. Because these were all people that were really usually stressed in their personal lives. Either they had really intensive work obligations. Lots of them were in customer service. So they had very strict sort of social interactions where they constantly have to use Kago. A few people on the opposite end of the spectrum were the hikikomori, the shut-in people who were looking to get out, but not ready necessarily to jump on out to full society. So visiting the cat cafe with the cats was like a transitionary step for them getting back out there. So that's something that I found really interesting. But doing my research, basically, there's been no ethnographic work at all on these more exotic cafes, such as the owls, the shodobutsu, the reptiles. And that's what I'm really interested in and really hoping to get Japan to do, because I want to know, are the motivations the same? Are people going to owl cafes for Iyashi? Or is it more of like a just a novelty thing? Are there regulars at exotic pet cafes? Or is it just more like a, a one-off sort of a thing? Mm. These are all mm. unknowns right now. And pretty much the only research on exotic cafes so far has been just numbering them, like seeing how many there are in Japan and watching the progress they rise over time. But again, there hasn't been any sort of ethnographic work. So the differences between them and the cat cafes, I so far don't know. I see. I've personally never been to a pet cafe while in Japan as I was under the impression that people went there for the selfies. So I'm surprised to hear uh, a large chunk of the clientele go by themselves to personal comforts. Uh, have you visited these sort of places before yourself? So I have actually never been to one before either. And um, I don't know why. I, I mean, I really like animals. So just the previous times I've been in Japan, it just wasn't something that came up. So I've never been to one of these cafes myself. However, one thing that many, many years ago, um, or maybe 2010, so about a decade ago now, the first time I went to Japan, I was with some friends and we were in a mall just exploring. And in the mall, there was a pet shop and we decided to go on in. And this pet shop was not like anything you would ever see in a mall in the U.S. There was a wallaby. It completely blew my mind. There was a giant tortoise walking around. There was, you know, an iguana, owls. Just, I think the wallaby stuck out to me actually the most out of everything. <laughs> um, I, I just remember being so surprised that this was just in a mall out and about. And I actually forgot about that memory for many years until you know, I started doing this research and I remember thinking, oh, yeah, I could have I could have just bought a wallaby if I wanted to while I was in Japan. It was very strange. So I've never been to any of these cafes, but I have been able to witness with my own eyes. I guess some of the interesting pet possibilities that you can get in Japan. Yeah, definitely. So the term 
Iyashi, which you referred to before, uh, which can be translated as healing, solace, or therapy, is a prominent one in the literature around pet cafes, referring to the comforts patrons receive for their hourly fee. In a nation where discussion around mental health is relatively limited, could pet cafes be thought of as a space for self-medication of sorts? Yes, that's a really good question. So basically the three researchers who really focused on the cafes, Iyashi has been picked up as being a main reason. And I forget which author it was exactly, but she did refer to it sort of as an informal therapy, which I thought was really interesting because if you think about it, even in places where mental health is more openly talked about, the fact of the matter is to receive help can be very difficult and very expensive. An hour in a pet cafe versus an hour with a therapist, well, not comparable at all and necessarily the experience you will have, the accessibility to the average person to be able to go to one of these cafes is, um, like I said, if you're in Tokyo and Osaka, they're everywhere and they're fairly cheap and there's big chains of them. There's little more mom and pop shop type ones. You know, you can really find anything. You could find the cafe for you. The Iyashi aspect, though, I think it's also important to notice. So the Iyashi, it's a talking point when these cat cafes come up, but Iyashi services in general, a lot of things fall into that category. So while the cat cafes are just one example, the cat cafes would be considered maybe a type of Iyashi service in Japan, but there's many other things that could be, you know, Iyashi services, including things like a maid cafe or host clubs or even like sex work, getting a massage, um, getting your nails done, lots of things that are just, I guess in America, lots of times it would be referred to as treat yourself kind of a thing. <laughs> and that sort of seems to be the general equivalency of it is just like a way to treat yourself, but it seems like a temporary band-aid sort of a thing. Some of these people these regulars reading of this papers, it was actually interesting that they were like, oh, I would never tell my coworkers I went to a cat cafe, you know, because they were like middle-aged men and they didn't want people to think they were like cat otaku or something. <laughs> so um, it's interesting that, you know, mental health issues, talking about them can still be very stigmatized or controversial everywhere, including in Japan, but also even this alternative therapy of the cat cafe for some people was also something they, they didn't really want others to know about. Fascinating. So we've covered how pets improve people's well-being, but let's look at the well-being of the animals in these cafes. Some cafes keep exotic animals, sometimes smuggled into the country like slow lorises and meerkats, as you mentioned. What is the general level of care they receive, and what kind of legal protections do they have? Okay, so... Starting with the cat cafes, of course, that was one of the things that people, as these became popular in Japan, was the um, welfare and health of the cats and things like that. But as they were a new service, too, there wasn't really any laws to regulate them. In general, in my search, I could only actually find one cafe that was ever shut down because of 
welfare issues. They seemed more like hoarders in a cafe and had an insane number of cats in a small amount of space. But as these cat cafes became more popular, the laws actually had to adapt to them. And there is animal protection law in Japan that right now it's reviewed every five years. And I believe it was around 2010 that was edited to include that displaying of animals could not occur past 8 p.m. And apparently it was meant to target pet shops that were in sort of like entertainment areas kind of a thing where animals were sort of being kept awake late at night as like a display rather than actually being used for looking for homes sort of a thing. But it became a big deal for cat cafes because most cat cafes are actually open until like 10 p.m. And they said it was a problem because apparently a lot of their clientele, these regulars, are coming in between 8 p.m. and 10 p.m. at night. And so from the complaints about it, the law was actually revised to exclude cat cafes from this the presentation of animals past 8 p.m. law, which is, I think, interesting. In general, though, animal protection laws in Japan are fairly weak, especially compared to like the U.S., Canada, the U.K., lots of Western Europe. While they're better than a lot of places in like Southeast Asia, in general, they're not that great. So these cat cafes, people have gone there and sort of gotten a feel of them, right? And been able to make their own determinations. But again, there's been little or no work done on these exotic ones. So the only judgments that can be made right now are from a distance. So I don't want to say anything like too distinctive, but from a distance, there's lots of obvious issues that you can see already. One of the things a lot has to do with all species have individual needs that are unique to them. And a lot of these cafes just sort of have, again, like a hodgepodge of animals. Even the owl cafes will have a variety of species, not a single owl. And you kind of wonder how they're able to really cater to all these unique species that come from all over the world, you know, different climates, some nocturnal, some diurnal, some that are meant to live on their own, some that are meant to live in groups, some that are meant to fly, some that are terrestrial, are all being kept in indoor petting zoos, not reflective of what they would experience in the wild at all. So again, while I haven't done any ethnographic work, and I can't say firsthand, from what you can tell from a distance is that the welfare conditions of the animals in these more exotic places is questionable. I see. Well, thank you for answering all of my questions, Brittany, and good luck with getting out to Japan to do your eth ethnographic research. We'll look forward to hearing what comes from that. Before we finish the episode, could you share with us what other projects you're currently working on? Thank you. So one of the things I'm working on is actually sort of related to what you mentioned earlier about what is a pet in different places of the world. For me, that was one of the first thoughts I came up with. The idea of, again, these cafes, you know, they could be like a temporary pet. And while some people think it's okay to have them in a cafe and others think they don't, might just have to do with people's different definitions of 
what is a pet or what is domesticated, what is wild, what is exotic. And as I was doing research on it in English, I even realized that what is considered exotic, if you're talking about in the conservation world, if you're talking about in the veterinary world, if you're just talking to the general public, is going to be different. And so one of the first things I'm actually interested in looking at is language. And luckily, this I can do. I don't need to be in Japan to do some of the work I want to do for this. I just need culturally Japanese people. And Oxford is a pretty international place. So that'll be great for me. But looking into how Japanese people sort of categorize animals or what words they would use to describe these animals. I figured out these exotic pet shops, they use the word mezurashi a lot, but they also have the katakana word exotic in Japanese. And there are yase dobutsu, wild animal. So what terminology is used in Japanese to sort of define these animals and maybe what is considered a pet, what isn't, what's considered domesticated, what's non-domesticated. And it'd be interesting to do some comparative work with people from the UK or other countries. And if I don't end up being able to go to Japan, that might be a route I take is doing more comparative stuff. I see. Well, thank you once again, Brittany. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. You can find the link to Brittany's research profile in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe on japaninnorwich.org or on your preferred podcast provider for updates on new episodes. Join us for our next episode with Maud Rowell, freelance journalist and author of Blind Spots, Exploring and Educating on Blindness, to discuss infrastructure for the blind. Maud's upcoming William Holman project, Where Birds Don't Fly, will see her independently travel the length and breadth of Japan to demonstrate that accessible public infrastructure can benefit us all. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening. <laughs>